So for our Advent series, what we're doing is we're looking at what we call the prologue of John. That's John 1, verses 1 through 18, and we're taking it in four pieces over the next four weeks. And uh, each of these sections that we look at contain promises, radiant promises, promises that hold us in hope and sustain us. And what I'm doing is I'm comparing them with future stories in John where that show how each of these promises are met and fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Christ that we're celebrating in two weeks. Can you believe it? Christmas is two weeks away. And so all of this is meant to just help us appreciate the weight of Jesus coming into the world and the longing that we carry every day for the second advent when Jesus comes back to be with us and set the whole world to rights. Now, as we look at the book of John, uh, we, we find that the book of John is deeply rich and it's deeply theological. And uh, some of our richest Christological and theological teachings find some of their roots in the book of John itself. And, uh, and it can require deep study in order to understand. But none of that means that God is impersonal or far away. In fact, I think when we look at these promises, we see that God is intensely personal, and his promises are intensely personal. And in fact, it was the intensely personal nature of the promises that we're looking at this morning that were instrumental in the conversion of St. Augustine. And this morning, what we're looking at is a very personal promise that God gives his people, that he meets our human need for a place to belong. Let's look together. I'm going to read John 1, verses, oh gosh, 9 through 13. And then I'll jump over to chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, 
and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly? Into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we've arranged ourselves to sit under your word, and so we pray over these next few minutes that you would speak to your people, that you would give us life. Holy Spirit, would you breathe life into us? And I pray that you would cause hard hearts to thaw. I pray that you would cause distant hearts to draw near. And that you would give us a sense of the deep love that you have for us. And the deep hopes that you have for each of us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just as World War II was ending, it was 1945. C.S. Lewis published a book. And when you read it, you can kind of see how it was an offering uh, to a group of people who were forging their way in the aftermath of a war-torn world. It's called The Great Divorce. Many of you have, uh, may have read it. Some of it was scholarly. Much of it was speculative. Uh, I would say all of it was fascinating. And what he did was he created a fictional exploration of a man who was uh, leaving his place in hell and making a journey on his way to a place in heaven. And it was a narrator in a gray and rainy city that found himself on a bus ride into the sky and arrived in a heavenly place. And when he arrived, what he found was a place that was beautiful and bright in contrast to the place that he had come from. Uh, He found a place that he loved and immediately wanted to be there. But for as much as he longed to be there, he found it a place that was very forbidding to him. It was a place that caused him pain. That his eyes weren't used to just how bright it was, and so it hurt his eyes. And he found the place was very substantial in contrast to where he had come from. That the, 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 the blades of grass wouldn't yield under his feet. In fact, they cut his feet like diamonds, and the leaves were so heavy, he couldn't pick them up. And so what C.S. Lewis drew was a picture of a place where some, anyone would long to belong, a beautiful place, but also a place where it, the narrator just simply didn't fit, where it caused him pain to be there. Now, C.S. Lewis is a master storyteller, and I think he knew what he was doing when he painted this picture, because what he was doing was naming one of our deepest hopes, and one of our deepest fears. Because we are all looking for a place to belong. It's a question that we ask every day. Do I belong here? Does my work matter here? Do my words matter here? Do I have value here? It's a question we ask, and at the root of all of that is the question, do I belong here? It's a question we ask every day when we go to work. It's a question we ask when we go home. It's a question we, we all ask when we walk into this room on Sunday morning is, do I belong here? And we're all looking for an answer to that question. And as much as we understand 
that this question is not lost on us. When we look at the Bible, what I want to propose to you is that that deep question is not lost on God either. And in fact, he created us with a very human need to belong. If you look at the beginning of, uh, of the Bible, garden, the, garden of Adam and e- the, the Garden of Eden, he created a place where Adam and Eve fit and that they belonged. And when Jesus comes into the world again as a baby, what we see is that he understands our need, he sympathizes with our need, and he promises to remedy that very human need to belong with himself in every way. Well, where do we see that in the text? What I want to say about looking at this text is that we see God answering our very natural and human need to belong with what Jesus experienced, with what Jesus challenges, and with what Jesus promises. What Jesus experienced, well, what we see, the story of Jesus' incarnation begins with what the naming of a tremendous disconnect between Jesus and the things that are most important to him. And in verse 10, what you see is, is a, a, a tremendous disconnect between Jesus and the world that he loves. Jesus was in the world, the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. That's the first disconnect, and that's a real problem, that the world that was created by Jesus, loved by Jesus, can't even recognize Jesus when he comes. That's disconnect number one. The second one It has to do with Jesus' relationship to his people. Look at verse 11. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And remember, these were people that enjoyed God's favor. That sat under his providential protection and his grace. And yet when he came to him, you see that they had no space for him. The theme of the rejection of Jesus is spread all throughout his life. And it began right at the beginning with his very birth. That, that young Mary had no place to deliver Jesus. So he was born in a stable. And when he was a boy, he went to the temple, which was quite literally his father's house. And the teachers there didn't know what to do with him. And then as he got older, he, he was in, in his public ministry. He came to his own hometown. And they ran him right out of town. They rejected him. In John 12, there's, a, there's a, a scene which gives us an idea of some of the motivations behind the rejection of Jesus. He's in Jerusalem, and it says, Though he had done many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. And for those that did, but for fear of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess it out loud. Why? Because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, there is a sadness behind that, isn't there? Like when you look over the course of Jesus' life, you see this theme of rejection, and it's very sad, both for Jesus and the people that rejected him, because if belonging is a human need, which I would propose that it is, we were created with that need, then alienation is dehumanizing. And when we look at Jesus' life, we see that he experienced the dehumanizing effects of alienation almost everywhere he went. The Washington Post published a a survey in Census Bureau, and this came out just before Thanksgiving. And uh, what it did was it showed how the amount of time that we as Americans are spending in solitude 
has increased dramatically over the last several years. And, uh, and it, it actually proposes to us that this trend began about 10 years ago, well before there was a pandemic. Uh, it's spiking now is what it looks like. And the pandemic kind of exacerbated this trend. But they made the point, and this is really fascinating, that back in 2014, when smartphones hit 50% market saturation, that we, there was a 37% drop in time spent with people. And that today there has been a 58% increase in time spent in solitude since 2013, 10 years ago. And in general, what it was telling us, and this may be you, may not be you, but it, what, it, what it was telling us is that there are many of us who are, for various reasons, habitually choosing solitude over people. Now, if, if this doesn't describe you, then it describes somebody you know. It might describe your neighbor or your friend or somebody in your family. And it tells us, one, that I can't think of a more important time where the hospitality of the church matters a lot. But it also tells us that if anyone needs to understand, I want you to hear this, that if there's anyone that understands the loneliness of, uh, or the pain of loneliness then it's Jesus. If anyone knows what it feels like to scan an environment and find it forbidding or unwelcome or difficult or alienating, then it would be Jesus. And what's interesting about Jesus is that it doesn't cause Jesus to withdraw. But instead, what we see in this passage is that Jesus leans in and begins to challenge the very norms by which the habitual practice of alienation is even possible. And here we're looking at Jesus' challenge. And uh, and this is in chapter 3. He has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And he challenges Nicodemus in just about every way possible. And I don't get the sense that this is a heated exchange. In fact, when I look at it, it kind of looks like they're, they're treating each other with a lot of respect. But Nicodemus is a Pharisee who comes to him at night. And to understand just how dramatic what Jesus said to him was, we kind of need to understand just who this man Nicodemus was. Verse 1 tells us that he was a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees, and a ruler of the Jews. So a man of the Pharisees means that he would have been a distinguished and esteemed teacher in the temple. People would have respected him. They would have gone to listen to what he had to say. And the ruler of the Jews means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so some of you might remember several weeks ago, we talked about how Peter and John went and testified before the Sanhedrin. This was, these were, uh, these were um, the highest authority in their temple courts. And, uh, and so when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus is talking with a, a man of tremendous power and influence. And to say that the Pharisees were critical and the life of the Jewish people is really putting it mildly. Because what they, were, what they did is they were in charge of helping the people understand what God wanted for them and what God expected of them. So they shaped the values of the community. And they taught specifically about what qualified you to belong as a member of God's people. 
In popular religious thought of that day, this is what Nicodemus would have taught in so many ways, was that what the, the Jews were admitted to the kingdom, that their Jewish identity was, was, uh, was the critical thing that, made, that helped you belong as a member of God's people. And so unless you were apostate, you kind of rejected the faith, or you, had, you were guilty of some extraordinary wickedness, or you were breaking God's law, um, that you belonged in the, in the mem- as a member of God's covenant community. That was what he taught. And so what was important was, A, uh, being um, b- uh, your ethnic identity and, of course, your right actions, the, the importance of keeping God's law. That was what he taught. That was the rules. That, those were the rules that he set amongst the rest of the Pharisee for what it looked like that qualified you to belong as a member of God's people. And it's interesting to me that those are the two points that Jesus challenges specifically in his conversation with Nicodemus. Like that's exactly what he challenges. Look at verse three. Unless one is born again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the people of God. Sorry, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that word see could mean to experience or participate in. That's a word for belonging in the kingdom of God. And this makes no sense to Nicodemus. Verse 4 is some version of, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus goes further and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a new birth required. That's that's the idea behind being born again. There's a new birth or a rebirth that's required, that's necessary to belong in the kingdom of God. He's talking about a complete overhaul of your former self. And he says, you're a teacher of Israel. How in the world are you surprised by this? In fact, um, there are several places in God's word that talk about this. And the, the one that's most clear that I put it as your assurance of grace. You can look at it. It's in Ezekiel 36. I threw it in there because it traces so closely with what Jesus is saying here. You see that God declares or promises that he will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and I will give you a new heart. You see that? Rebirth, overhaul of your former self, putting a new heart in you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will replace your heart of stone, your hard-heartedness towards God and will give you a heart of flesh a tender heart towards God. He's describing the new birth that Jesus is talking about in this passage. And we see similar prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah, which that's the reason that Jesus says, how can you, a teacher of Israel, not understand these things? And here's what I want you to see what Jesus is doing. And this is really important because he is completely stripping away Nicodemus's intellectual teaching, his cultural insights, every bit of the value that Nicodemus thought that he had to offer the people, 
everything that substantiated him as a person amongst them. He stripped it all away, he bypassed it, and he went right to Nicodemus's heart. That's what he's doing. And let me tell you, this would have been very scary for Nicodemus because he's undermined his teaching. He's told him, I mean, I couldn't imagine how groundbreaking, once he absorbed all these things, how groundbreaking this must have been, undermining and shaking for him. And and Jesus is saying is that only one whose heart has been cleansed by God can belong in God's kingdom. Now let's just take a second. Imagine you were in Nicodemus' shoes right now. They didn't wear shoes. Sandals. Imagine you were in Nicodemus' sandals. What would you do at this point? I mean, you just heard a bunch of things you you may have never heard before. No intellectual likes that. I would say this conversation could go either one of two ways. You could either dismiss them outright, or you could hear what Jesus is saying and you could be hungry for more. And I tell you, it would be tempting to dismiss them outright. It would be very tempting to say, I'm comfortable with what I know. I'm comfortable with what I think I know. I'm comfortable with my place in this community, as a, uh, the status I have in the temple, I'm comfortable with who I know, the work that I do. I'm comfortable with all of that. And, and many did dismiss Jesus outright. He came to his own and his own people did not. Or you could be hungry for more. Jesus aimed at his heart. And he's talking about his heart. And what if he looked at his heart and felt uncomfortable with it? For as much as he's earned, for for as much as he's done, what if Nicodemus looked at his heart and said, oh man, I am aware of the cleansing my heart needs. I am aware of all the ways that selfishness governs in my heart. I am aware of the sin that's there and the ways that I've hurt I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my neighbor. I've sinned even against the people that I love the most. And I've sinned against myself. What if he looked at his heart and found discomfort with the state of it? And he was hungry for more. And we don't know this, but we think that it's likely that's the path that Nicodemus chose. In a few chapters, you're going to see him stand up for Jesus in public against the Pharisees. And after Jesus' death, you're going to find Nicodemus right there next to Joseph of Arimathea coming to the Pharisees to claim Jesus' body. And if this is you, if you're looking at your own heart and you're uncomfortable with it, then I want you to know you're in good company. That one of the key ingredients for just belonging as a people of Jesus Christ is simply the work of repentance. To say, I belong to Jesus because of what he has done for me, not because of anything I've done for him. And the the other thing is that the challenge of Jesus given to us never comes without a promise. Look at verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is adoption language. When you adopt a child, some of you in here have, when you adopt a child, you are making a promise to that child that they will always have a place 
with you and in your home. And that is the promise that God makes to his people who come to him by confession and repentance and faith. How does this happen? Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When Jesus mentioned Moses and the serpent, Nicodemus would have remembered this really curious story. It's from Numbers 21. And it's where the people are in the wilderness. God's leading them through the wilderness. Moses is their leader. And uh, the people are just unhappy. Their hearts are in a bad place. And they are angry about the food that they've been eating. They're angry about the danger they feel like they're in. They're just discontent with God and the things that he's given to them. And so they accuse God of bringing them out there to die. Well, this is a sin against God, and God disciplines them with fiery serpents. He sends these fiery serpents among them. And you see that some people did die. And the people came to Moses and said, we're sorry. Please pray to God that he would deliver us. And so when Moses prays to God, God says, construct a fiery serpent on a pole and lift it up so that the people may look on it and live. And that's exactly what happened. And the the, the, the analogy that Jesus is using here is piercing to the soul because just as the serpent on the pole was symbolic of the people's sin, when Jesus was put on a cross and lifted high, the sins of his people went with him. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, the promise for you and for me is that all those who look on Jesus in faith, confessing our sins to him in need of his grace, belong in the kingdom of God. We may never fit this place. But what the promise is, is that when we join, are united to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit goes to work in us and is preparing us for the kingdom to come. That's the comfort. That he's preparing us for us a place. And we're all on the way to that together. You know, when we look at each other, that's what we need to see. Some like to call the church a colony of heaven. That holds forward a foretaste of the place that we all long for. A community of people, all very different. All saved by the same grace. All on the same journey to the place of belonging that we're going to together. There's a story that came out maybe a week ago. It's fascinating. Thirteen strangers were abandoned. Uh, well, they all, had their, they all had their flight canceled in the Orlando airport. And um, they end up in a line. You don't know how long it is. You could be on hold with the airline or, you know, in line at a desk. Trying, and they were all trying to fly to Knoxville. And none of them knew each other. And the flight was canceled at night. And uh, it was all these different people. There were, you know, there was, a college, there was a high school student who was just trying to get up to UTK with her parents in order to uh, uh, tour the campus. There were a couple people going to a conference. There was a pastor who was just trying to go home. I'll have you know that the pastor had a great beard, by the way. Fantastic. And they don't know how it happened, but somewhere along the way, somebody came up with an idea that they would all just rent a van and drive up to uh, Knoxville through the night together. And so 13 strangers with their bags 
all hopped in a multi-passenger van and drove through the night. And what they didn't realize at the time was that one of the people in their crew was a, uh, uh, had a TikTok account and a pretty, a pretty large following. And she began to video diary the whole trip all the way up. And, uh, and, and it, it, the whole thing went kind of viral. Like there were all these people that were like asking for updates on how the trip was going and every hour along the way and every stop. And there was the one person who always needed to pull over to use the bathroom. Like it was all out there. And there was this crowd of people that were all watching their progress and rooting them on the whole time. And I just think it's a beautiful story in so many ways. I just love how friendships were forged. I loved how they were all different. They didn't know each other, but they were going to the same place. I love the idea that, that, uh, that, they, uh, that they just took care of each other on a long and hard journey that became difficult all of a sudden. There are times where we can look at this church And we can wonder where we belong. But when we look at the story of Jesus, what I want you to see is a Savior who entered into a hard world in order to be with us and is right now promising to lead us home to a place that he prepared for us, to a place where we belong. And we have the joy of following our Savior together carrying his promises with us as we journey together, helping each other along the way. That is our joyful duty, to give to each other what Jesus has given to us. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh Lord, help us to see these ways that this is true. Help us to look for the kingdom that's coming. And to long for that. I pray that you would help us to trust these promises. And help us to build with each other what this colony of heaven that holds forth the promises that you have given to the world. Help us to picture this community that you've given to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.